Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. If the government needs something made, it's supposed to look for a small business to make it. You've heard that. If no small business exists, an agency can get a waiver from the Small Business Administration to have it made by somebody else, another domestic company. But there's a problem with waivers. And for details, we turn to Blank Rome Procurement Attorney Justin Chiarotto. Justin, good to have you back. Good morning, Tom. Happy New Year. Great to be back. All right. So the government has been scrambling to find small businesses for a lot of the needs that it has. I mean, IT and services companies, dime a dozen, if you will. But the supplier base is shrinking for small business, even though more dollars are going there. So what is the basic requirement here? Let's set the scene. Absolutely, Tom. I think you're you're absolutely right to home in on the on the erosion of the small business base across industry in the last several years has been pretty well documented. Yes, the non-manufacturer rule permits the small business set-asides to provide products, principle is, of another small business unless those products are not available in sufficient quantities. And the exception here under the non-manufacturer rule basically provides for the ability for a company to seek a waiver of the application of that rule to submit products in cases where there aren't compliant products available. That is to say a non-manufacturer can supply it. That's right. Essentially a a resale of products from a non-small business. So the non-small business could be a giant manufacturer, but they would use the small business as the way in, which is contrary to the standard way in which if you award to a small business, the small business must do at least 50% of the work. That is to say Northrop Grumman can't do 90% of the work under a small business set aside with the small business just being the conduit. That's right. And so, you know, typically you're looking for things like value-added resale, right? Or there are small businesses that are providing additional value in this process, in the supply chain to drive that base. But the issue is obviously creating a massive end around around the rule generally erodes the ability for manufacturers to develop the capacity to actually deliver these products. So the waiver process exists by which an agency goes to the SBA and says there's nobody to make these gyroscopes or these 16 by 27 foot steel beams. That's a small business. So we're going to have, you know, United Acme Steelworks make it, but it's going to be sold to us through mom and pop distribution company. Mom and pop distribution company. That's exactly right. So what's the problem? Well, there are a lot of problems. I think practically speaking, there's a lot of administrative process that needs to go into the waiver request generally. And- Frankly, there's not a lot of depth of manufacturing capability out here in a lot of these product categories. And more generally, a real strong demand, particularly looking at things like defense manufacturing and defense articles right now, you know, a tremendous demand on a lot of these products and not the ability for the manufacturing base to meet the demand. So you really have a confluence of issues. Complexity, limited resources, right? Limited time within the contracting activities to move through this process and a limited base. And how does that manifest itself and what, say, your clients ask you for help with? That's a great question, Tom. I think it's important for companies to really be thinking about their outreach and go-to-market strategy as far ahead in advance of some of these opportunities as they can and really build awareness both within agencies and with other stakeholders within the procurement process, in my view, to get out in front and build the groundwork necessary for the, the procuring activities to be aware of this to be essentially helpful, right? You know, an extra potential pair of hands or tools to help ensure that these processes are being managed appropriately. You're seeing things like that with Inflation Reduction Act, right? Domestic manufacturing, those types of issues. You see a lot of people thinking about how to position themselves for these opportunities before they're on the table. 
We're speaking with procurement attorney Justin Chiarotto of Blank Rome. Maybe the real issue is that the small business manufacturers are out there. They just don't want to bid on government contracts because federal government contracts and a lot of state government contracts come with rules for your carbon footprint, rules for your labor practices, rules for your DEI, you name it. Maybe they're out there, but they say, who needs this when it comes to dealing with the federal government because of the enormous compliance costs? Well, and let's not forget the early holiday present of uh, draft CMMC rule coming out as well for cybersecurity. So you're absolutely right. There is a tremendous burden that is added on top of this. And I think procurement community is, is working. Uh, you certainly see this with outreach to Silicon Valley on ways to make it easier for people to participate. There is the recent DOD rule for commercial item procurement that's seeking to streamline some of the burdens that contractors may face. I think there are also a lot of trade associations out there and efforts within the small business community to combine forces to build advocacy networks and outreach that can make it easier to do this. And and I frankly think you'll need to see some industrial policy as well that is seeking to actually put money to work, right, for these things. You've certainly seen that with the submarine supply base. I'll call out as an example where a bunch of money has been basically pushed out through grant programs to try and stabilize that supply base. So I think there are a number of factors that are going to need to be brought to bear to arrest and turn around this erosion that we've seen and to, and to make it a more attractive marketplace. And what have you seen with respect to SBA and the process for granting waivers? How does the SBA verify that there actually is no one to bid on a particular contract? And who does the market research and how does all that work? Yeah, the market research, you have sort of a policing function, right? Because the contracting activity should be the one doing the market research to identify whether or not there are sufficient small businesses out, you know, in the community to meet a particular requirement. You know, SBA, from a resource perspective and and, and policing and reviewing that, again, it's this limited resource problem, right, of being able to come in and look at what potentially could be a smaller procurement, right? How can I bring in an extra set of eyes to do that? And so I think it really comes back to the importance of contractors that may see. And again, it shouldn't be a burden on the contractor to do it, but to be thinking about how they can make their case, build that network of advocates. And many agencies are going to have a good office of small business utilization, right? Procurement technical assistance centers are out there. Lawyers are out there. Uh, Lobbyists are out there, certainly in this town, that can, again, build this awareness and, again, create a set of usable data, actionable data that's digestible, that's easy to understand, that can help make it easier to push this process along. And there are manufactured products, and then there are manufactured products. If you want to buy a production-level copier machine, well, there is no small business that makes such a thing. Or if you want to buy a fleet of electric vehicles, there are no – well, they started out big. Most of them have disappeared. But there are no small businesses that can supply that. That's different. That's a different issue. You would have to go to a distributor or reseller, and that's probably the norm for copiers and electric vehicles or whatever. But what about small assemblies, machined parts, forgings, castings, connectors, extruded parts? These used to be made by thousands upon thousands of small companies. So you really have two classes of product here. Yeah, in that latter category, it's a huge challenge. I think we're seeing today the challenges that we have in these manufactured parts and their availability. There's been a lot of efforts to consolidate a lot of these suppliers within larger companies. It's a big problem. It's a big challenge. Because if the original OEM product was made by a large manufacturer, say that electric car, and 
you know, Tesla made it or somebody made it. Well, they don't make most of the parts that go in there, and it's the That's parts right. that fail, not the chassis. And so if you need a new, I don't know, what's an electric car, a motor, you don't need oil, whatever you need in there, well, probably you can't get it from the OEM. That's right. That's right. Where can I get that steering knuckle, right, that I need to, you know, round the bend? And there are just fewer people and companies that are in a position to meet those needs. So I think it really, you know, it's this concept of a whole of government approach to address the erosion of the manufacturing base. When you look at the national security challenge and, and the government is talking about this, you know, the, the whole of government is talking about this specific pivot to strategic competition, there is an awareness and a recognition that we don't have the manufacturing capability in the United States and our allies, right, our, our close friends, that we need to meet that challenge. And this is a, an interesting manifestation of some of that problem and the resources that it's gonna take, and it's certainly gonna need dollars right, put to work on this. But I also think trying to go it alone as a contractor is, is probably tough. It's finding those networks and trade associations and other advocacy channels that can help build this awareness where it's just not there right now. And perhaps maybe one course for the government is to gain visibility into the component supply chain at the outset of a procurement of, say, a platform. That's absolutely right. Um, and, and certainly the government is going to want to know where its stuff is coming from. <laughs> Uh, that's become doubly important today. I mean, even manufactured products, right? We have a commitment in recent domestic preference law to increase the percentages of domestic content, right, in the coming years. And so I think there are a lot of forces that are coming to bear here that will eventually impact this. But today it's a challenge. And the government has to be prepared for what it costs to get replacement parts. If you ever tried to replace, say, the module in a 25-year-old double oven in the wall, which I have, well, you know, you can either get a whole new oven or you can get that module if you can find it. Yes. Well, and there, you know, you raise an interesting engineering uh, challenge. They don't make ovens like they used to, um, but you see this also in talking about defense platforms. How can we simplify production in these systems to make it easier, right, to sustain them, to keep them running, and to ensure that we have sufficient spare parts availability and capability to keep things moving? I mean, that's why are certain electric manufacturer vehicles very successful is they've really focused incredible energy on simplifying manufacturing, right? Improves margins and improves the ability to, you know, service products and keep them running. So again, you know, it sounds like it's really technical issue, non-manufacturer rule. This is really arcane. This is sort of government contractors and the green eye shades, but it really does sort of shed a, uh, a spotlight on the policy challenge and the procurement challenge that I think, you know, is going to be with us for a while. All right. Well, it's easier to change a piston ring than it is to change a module. Attorney Justin Chiarotto of Blank Rome, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities 
is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply. That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it, and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins. 
who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.